a climate economist at Columbia Business School. His research, writing, and teaching focus on climate risks and climate policy. Gernot writes a monthly column for Project Syndicate and has written several books, including Geoengineering, The Gamble, But Will the Planet Notice, Climate Shock, which he co-authored with Martin Weizmann, and City Country Climate, published in German. He was the founding executive director of Harvard's Solar Geoengineering Research Program and served as economist at the Environmental Defense Fund. He has also been a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Since he's well-versed in environmental science, public policy, and economics, I wanted to ask him some questions about the nature of the capitalist system we inhabit as a global order, and also some of the ways that system is reinforced both through government policy and through social norms. While he readily concedes the fact that the system of neoliberal capitalism is a fundamentally flawed one, replete with problems, he makes it clear that he feels the fix for our situation is to work within it. The sense I get is that, from Wagner's perspective, we have to hope it's possible to reform capitalism in part because the version of it we live in now is completely unregulated. It's a space where, despite the obviousness of the truth of climate collapse, the average car now looks like a tank. It's an iteration of capitalist overproduction in which we are, as he says, just letting things rip and not caring about the consequences. I like his idea that the current state of affairs means that societies have, to some extent, made a fetish out of the market as a sensible source of social organization, even when it's clearly not one. But to put it differently, the point is that another capitalism is possible for Wagner. And for this reason, he says that he really disagrees with folks like Naomi Klein, who say that right now our moment of peril and precarity is our last best chance to replace capitalism. He agrees that the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the global instability it's caused really did represent a moment of opportunity for climate and energy policy. but. You know, we talk about how it's mainly led to a shift in defense spending, a widespread militarization which incidentally is going to worsen the climate crisis. Europe could have used this window of opportunity to get off Russian energy immediately, but it didn't. It is patently the case that this is a terrible decision, that Russian oil and gas were so indispensable that much of the globe has been compelled to finance Putin's war of aggression in Ukraine. But what it reinforces as well is the fact that the right answer to our fossil fuel ecological catastrophe is going to be different in different countries and even in different parts of different countries. I respect the realism here. It says, I think correctly, that it's too late in the game to choose the perfect or pure option. And yet I have to push back against his claim that if we're making, quote, fixing climate conditional on fixing every other social ill, you're not going to do much. While there is nuance in his perspective that structural solutions and policy change cannot be contingent on behaviors changing, and this notion that the purest solution cannot be our goal, it's still the case that any sort of transition from fossil fuels that doesn't address underlying structural issues will necessarily perpetuate massive amounts of harm in a deeply divided, unevenly distributed world. That all said, I got so much out of talking with Gernot. He argues really clearly for attacking the problem of climate change by centering human desires and more particularly social norms. He stresses that given the overwhelming mess we're in, 
we're going to flip the switch not just by making rational arguments, but by combining the work of pushing for policy change with the perhaps more complicated work of rewriting the norms and cultural defaults that make ecocidal behavior seem acceptable. As an economist, but also as an observer of the built environment, he's really perceptive about the ways that you know, social norms function as a major determinant of climate action to a greater extent even than the level of knowledge we have. I wanted to start, you know, in, in Climate Shock, the book that you co-authored with Martin Weitzman. Um, there's a line where you talk about, I guess all of us collectively now being at the acceptance stage of climate grief. In terms of this stage of grief, I think you're right to say uh, in the article you wrote that's titled, It's Late and It's Cheap, that this time does feel different. And you say that the way climate acceptance manifests itself now is ironically through a politics of refusal. And, and what I mean is that uh, um, you're talking about how the language in many ways has changed. Like you say in that article, mm -hmm. words matter, and you admit you don't know if the UN Secretary, Secretary General Antonio Guterres' words will stick, but the notion as he puts it, that the IPCC report is an atlas of human suffering, you see clearly as like a stark, shocking, resonant interpretation that can have this political effect. Um, are you thinking about that when you're aiming to get people to reflect maybe on their own climate grief and the need to take stock of just basically the accelerating pace of change? Okay, so maybe one way to think about this is sort of in terms of willful blindness. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, look, there is the potential to basically say just, you know, people don't get it. Right. You know, you and I might know enough about it. It's being climate change. Um, but look, if we just taught everybody those lessons, they too would finally realize that we need to do more. Right. Um, I don't think that's true. I don't think. Um, I don't think it's true anymore to say, uh, you know, more facts are going to do it. For some people, sure, um, you know, always. Um, for the vast, vast majority, though, they know enough or they should know enough to know that, you know, Climate change is real. It's a problem. The stuff we know is bad enough. Um, the stuff we don't know is potentially even worse, much, much worse. Mm -hmm. um, so it's this willful blindness of, um, look, I'd rather not think about it. And maybe a good analogy, a recent one, of course, is COVID, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what, we passed a million people in the U.S., 15 or so million globally, right? Um, there's still, what is it, 500 Americans dying every day? And, yeah. you know, we've basically stopped, right? We have stopped to do, like, okay, and there too, right? There's the, you know, back of the envelope sort of benefit cost analysis of mask ordering, just to give you one example, right? So, you know, the, uh, uh, the benefits of having a well-fitted medical mask, you know, one of these KN95 masks on indoors, for a week is like $100 plus, mm -hmm. right? Now, it's not to you, 
right? Are you going to die? No, very unlikely, right? You healthy 35-year-old are not going to die of COVID, most likely, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it's, you know, the fifth interaction down the line, the 80-year-old immunocompromised person, and yeah, you will have killed that person. Now, you're not going to know about it. And of course, I get it. There is a cost to mask wearing, right? It's annoying. But is your cost personally really those $100 per week? No, it's not, right? If somebody paid you 100 bucks a week to put on a damn mask, you would do it. Hmm. Um, but of course, you know, we don't pay people to wear masks, right? We used to mandate it. And we no longer, um, and we are just completely fine with that. Okay, so is, is it that more knowledge? You know, me telling you that we should be wearing masks indoors because, hey, look, there are benefits? No, like, what more do you want, right? It's like recent in memory. Um, uh, it, you know, everybody should know, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's willful blindness. Um, and uh, yeah, that's a real... <laughs> That's a real problem, right? Because it's not that more science, more facts, more knowledge is going to solve this, right? It's just not. Um, it's, it's, it's lots of other factors. It's sort of social norms, right? If you see people around you all wearing masks, yeah, you put it on, right? If, if there's a group meeting, right? Half a dozen people at work meeting and the first person walking into the room keeps their mask on and then the second person too has a mask and keeps it on, the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth person is going to wear a mask for that meeting. If the first person takes it off and the second walks in, takes it off, guess what happens, right? The third person takes it off too, right? And it's, it's sort of that, right? Uh, yeah. That has nothing, very, very little to do with, you know, yeah. the facts of. It's all about social norms, um, groupthink, how do you, you know, that sort of, how do you behave in the face of, in light of others acting a certain way? Yeah, I take that point. You, you make this point that it does come down to norms and parameters. You say that in one article. Um, norms are these things that produce behaviors, you just said. And parameters, I guess, mm -hmm. are more about the policies that mandate certain things and maybe then make certain things free in order to encourage particular behaviors. Um, I wonder, like, Holly Jean Buck has this new book, Ending Fossil Fuels, that talks about like how social media culturally is establishing a lot of these norms. And she says in that book that, quote, the engineering of the media and information landscape puts hard constraints on what she calls the bottom up delegitimation of fossil fuels. She says at best, this is the issue, at best, half of the people can be convinced that they are dangerous and dirty, which is to say fossil fuels, while the other half will become more entrenched in their position uh, that the other side is just using this narrative for political ends. And you write in Climate Shock that yeah. it is about how we learn the values, not just about individual va exactly. values, but how we learn the values. Um, you know, can you, can you kind of expand on that in terms of like what that means between like distinguishing individual values between like that and how we learn the values? Sure. I mean, it, 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 right? it is about norms. It's all about how everyone else behaves around you. Actually, you know, right now I'm sort of in this funny situation. I'm at two institutions at the same time. At, uh, I'm at NYU and you know, on leave from there. And I'm spending my most of my time at uh, Columbus, Columbia Business School. Um, 
two, you know, two universities in New York City, right? Both, you know, rationally managed, if you will, right? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's very little difference in terms of, you know, their function and the, the role those institutions are supposed to play in society and are played in society, right? Okay, um, one department, one of those two, I'm not going to tell you which one now, but one of those two, the mm-hmm. norm is everybody wears masks. It's just there's right. no question, right? Like you sort of, you you walk in the door, like uh, even uh, sort of you have a uh, coffee with somebody outside and you are walking toward a group of students. And in some sense, you don't really know whether they are your students, right? Or sort of student, NYU students, Columbia students, right? Or sort of just, you know, a random group of people hanging out in the neighborhood, right? Um, mm-hmm. And sort of the default is you as faculty model good behavior. So you put on a mask. Mm-hmm. Um, even if even if you're outdoors, and then inside it's you know 99.999% compliance. Basically, everybody wears them. One is the other one. Nobody wears them. Literally, it's just it's. I mean, no, not anymore, right? I mean, it used to be, but basically there was you know a, a decision some at some point that says, hey, it's optional now. Uh, you know, up to you if you want to. And yeah, there's you know a handful of people who do wear it, um, but basically. No, there's, you know, meetings, one-on-one meetings, 12 people in a room, and the most senior faculty members, right? You know, like the 80-year-olds, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, triple vaxxed and everything, but just takes it off. Okay, none of this is, you know, rational. None of this is about, you know, somebody does the benefit-cost analysis and figures out that, you know, to me, the benefits just don't exceed the cost, so I won't. Um, and, glo- you know, socially, sort of the the externalities included, right, is not worth it. That's, no, not at all. It is 100% about the norms. Norms meaning how, you know, how that institution, how people in that institution. Okay, so, you know, back to fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, you know, I, Holly, Holly Jean Buck is onto something, of course. Uh, this book is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, ending fossil fuels. Uh, it, it, the sort of argument that says burning fossil fuels, burning gas in your own home isn't just bad for the planet, it's bad for you. You're going to get asthma. Your kids are going to grow up with asthma, more likely to, right? And no, it's not like, oh my God, right? You turn on the gas stove once and uh, you get sick. Of course not. Um, but yeah, we know. You know like science knows. Um, there's plenty of op-eds in the New York Times uh, uh, recently, one that, you know, again, right, sort of, hey, we've known since the 90s, right? This is common yeah. knowledge. The studies have been done, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, no, you can't convince 100% of people that fossil fuels are bad based on the facts, right? It is much more than that. It's about basically socializing the idea that it is okay to poo-poo something that until, frankly, relatively recently was just the way things are. And they still are, right? Like, you know, open your, uh, open your average architectural digest, the you know, gold standard for, you know, if, you, if your apartment is featured in that magazine, right, you've done something right on the design front. Okay, the average kitchen in that is obviously not an average kitchen, right? It's a very desirable one. Every one of them, almost every one, is a gas range, has a gas range. Mm-hmm. 
as opposed to an induction stove. There was actually, there was sort of a brief moment about a year or so ago, uh, you know, I kept counting sort of induction versus gas in on the pages of Equitextual Digest. And yeah, there was sort of a brief moment where sort of induction started getting the upper hand, right? Both in ads and in the articles. And mm-hmm. the latest one, <laughs> not a single induction stove in there. Um, every ad featuring any kind of kitchen, picture of a kitchen had a gas range in it. And every article had a gas range. Um, and, uh, you yep, know, that's about that. Well, it's about lots of things, right? It's about industry wanting that to happen, mm-hmm. right? Appliance manufacturers, utilities wanting that to happen. And yeah, you know, paying PR agencies to make it happen, of course, right? It's about vested interest as it always is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it always also is about sort of societal norms in the sense that Look, we associate, you know, the electric stove with sort of the crappy thing that burns your eggs in the morning versus the gas <laughs> range is the thing professional chefs use. Right. So it's a commodity you know, that then never, becomes something that we can fetishize because of its placement. Yeah. And ne- never mind that actually when you look, you know, bit more, dig a bit more deeply. So, um, you know, like the Thomas Keller, right, who runs French Laundry up in you know, Sonoma Valley in San Francisco and uh, and Per Se, the a fancy restaurant in New York City. Um, he's worse by induction. It's a better product. It's a better stove. It's more precise. It's just a better technology. Um, Noma, this like Danish restaurant, can't claim I've ever been, but you know, this is basically one of these restaurants that you know, seem to keep topping the the world's list of best restaurants, right? Um, mm-hmm. yeah, many of those chefs by now have moved on from gas. Yes, they all used to use gas to induction, basically calling it the better technology. Yeah, it takes some getting used to, you You know, your copper pans it won't work anymore. Um, uh, you need steel ones, iron ones. Um, and well, it's just a better product, right? Okay, um, how do you get this switch to happen? Well, not just by making rational arguments about, hey, rationally, this is a better thing. Fossil fuels are bad, right? It's about changing norms. It's about the average conversation about, you know, home cooks, right? Talking about their, uh, the desirability of different products or different stoves, right? Basically, you know, mm-hmm. singing the praises of, uh, of induction, right? It's about getting to this tipping point. It's about sort of all these sorts of things where simply the default value changes. Yeah, no, and you write about the kind of crucial function and usually the destructive effects of the media in your book, Geoengineering the Gamble. Like you talk about this article of yours that went viral and how, for the most part, that the the translation of that knowledge into mass <laughs> communication really bastardized the claims of that article. And, and similarly, like you're writing in this short, punchy article, Oil and Hamburgers, about the the necessary shift in cultural norms that will see the consumption of meat or the buying of SUVs basically stigmatized to such an extent that they aren't just everywhere all the time and, and taken for granted. Like you cite all of these like really horrifying facts around an increase in SUV buying and the fact that, you know, they account for an enormous amount of these kind of luxury emissions um, and, and you call yep. for like this fundamental rethink of, of the place of these things in society. So it's like all of these things do need to be taken together. The way that we cook hamburgers, the fact that we're cooking hamburgers and the fact that we're cooking the planet by driving our SUVs around and not thinking about it. Right. <laughs> um, yep. Well, yeah. yeah. You know, there's clear analogies here. Right. Um, mm-hmm. 
And at the same time, um, okay, so, you know, on the one hand, you know, welcome to my Twitter feed, right? So there is mm -hmm. sort of the, you know, I've sort of focus group tested this by now. I mean, this is sort of what, you know, social media does, right? Like you, you sort of, you go deeper and deeper into sort of the, like that the sort of language that gets the most attention, right? You then use more of and so on, right? So in my case, it is not, you know, cars. It is, um, you know, bourbonite, over, oversized bourbonite podcast players, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's a car. And, you know, it's not people living in the suburbs, right? Of course, it's bourbonites or square foot maximizers, right? Uh, and uh, sort of uh, it's, <laughs> it's um, calling out behavior that seems, you know, yeah, seems, seems normal, right? Half, half 50% of Americans live in suburbs, right? Mm -hmm. Live in, you know, the single family home with the yard and the two car garage or whatever. Um, out in the burbs. Um, it shouldn't be normal. <laughs> single family zoning is crazy, right? That you're literally like, you know, our freedom-loving conservative party in this country, right, is perfectly fine with, you know, basically local zoning laws, essentially, or state-level zoning laws, basically telling an entire state, right, that, no, you can't put a second story on your home, right? Mm -hmm. How crazy is that? Like, how how nuts is it to want to live in a place where basically, you know, nothing within, not, nothing is within walking distance, right? To be clear, right, for somebody growing up in the suburbs, right, is, yeah, that's just how the world looks. You know, it seems normal, right? It seems normal that every car is no longer a car these days, but it is an SUV, the average car, right? Mm -hmm. Driving around New York City is not a sedan. It's not a car that your, your grandfather would recognize, right? It's like, you know, looks like a tank, right? And these things are then, you know, in part even called suburbans, right? Um, mm -hmm. Completely out of place in, you know, in a city. Um, and uh, yes, changing the norm, right? Changing or for you know, at the very least calling it out and uh, making sure that you know, we do understand that, um, well, first of all, an alternative way here isn't in fact the alternative, right? But it's sort of, it's the better way, right? It's sort of like, <laughs> look, books like Bowling Alone, right? Are not written about people living in cities. Or for that matter, people living in the real country, right? Like sort of in the small village, right? Where everyone knows each other. No, they're written about the suburbs, right? They're written mm -hmm. about sort of the American way of life, right? How 50% of Americans. Right? Um, mm -hmm. And no, that shouldn't be normal. <laughs> None of this is. Mm -hmm. um, it must change. We know it must change. Um, now, just to be clear, um, we also cannot make rational semi-rational climate policy contingent on it changing, right? That's sort of the flip side, right? Mm -hmm. If you basically say, look, we have to fix all sorts of other problems first or in parallel, like, no, you know, electric vehicles are fantastic. They are fundamentally a better product than the internal combustion engine vehicle. We, you know, we must switch to electric vehicles. It's not gonna solve the single family house problem, right? You know, EVs are not for people living in cities who don't need cars in the first place, right? They're for the bourbonites, right? Who live outside, needing mm -hmm. to get to the city and, you know, refusing to take the train. And uh, that's sort of the, that's, that's part of this too, right? Techno fixes are good and EVs are techno fix. It doesn't fix everything. It doesn't fix urban sprawl. But yes, EVs are still better 
than the alternative. Um, yeah. And that's an important, yeah. Um, yeah, that's an important yeah. part here. And I, you know, I get a lot out of reading your work for this reason. Like, I may not agree with like every single thing you write, but what I get out of your your work is that like, you know, you're clearly trying to engage with this incredibly complex problem through a multidisciplinary approach. At the same time, you're particularly interested in how the market functions. And, and this, you kind of gestured to policy there, right? This kind of high level question. Um, you're interested in how the market functions in ways that either exacerbate or maybe ameliorate the climate emergency. And, you know, we're in a position now in Canada and elsewhere where the country is going to reportedly lose, um, and this is a recent report, $2.8 trillion Canadian by 2100 if temperatures rise by two degrees. And that figure is double if we reach the five degrees projected according to this business as usual trajectory. There are teams of researchers yep. like crying out, saying that transition, energy transition pays for itself in the long term if we take seriously these projected damages from like biodiversity loss, sea, sea level rise, infrastructure collapse, all this stuff. And yet, just like in seemingly intractable situations like, I don't know, criminal justice reform, making a pitch on the basis of projection is really hard. And I wondered if you've tried to crunch the numbers on this problem alongside trying to crack, it sounds like the issue of communication, representation and all that stuff. Like, for example, you know, I, I feel like people don't understand the complex role of like insurers, for example, you've written about insurance and the changes that are happening within that specific sector. Um, you say insurers sure, yeah. have been warning about climate risks for years, and many are radically changing policies on the basis of climate projections. Can something like that, like focusing on making that kind of canary in the coal mine fact of insurers changing their policies kind of relate? And I know it's just like relying on facts again for communication strategies, but like people care about being insured against these kinds of risks potentially. Do you think that can be a gateway yep. into getting people to understand the economics of climate change? Okay, so there's a lot there, right? So, I mean, mm -hmm. okay, again, right, facts matter, right? They should matter. And in some mm -hmm. sense, you know, it, it, you know, this is where you can accuse economists of being one too rational, right? But at, it, at some level, you know, the goal or the, you know, the task, if you will, for a sort of the, you know, the climate economist balancing the benefits and the costs and coming up with, sort of the path of how one should, should is the operative word, right? Address climate change. Yeah, it's about the numbers, right? It's about you tally the cost of unmitigated climate change. You, um, you look at the benefits of acting and, you know, you, uh, and the cost of acting for that matter, right? And then you, you know, you figure out what the trade-offs are and how to address. And um, yes, framing, looking at, climate as an insurance problem changes things even just on that factual basis, right? Basically just, mm -hmm. you know, just quote unquote saying, you know, we need to, we want to figure out what the right price per ton of CO2 is, framing the problem, looking at it as an insurance problem, changes how you approach this question. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, I also already mentioned this operative word here, right? Uh, uh, one should, and the other one, um, price per ton of CO2, right? Just because I'm telling you that there is sort of a right price per ton of CO2 um, doesn't mean that the 
correct and only correct answer is, oh, we need to have a carbon tax and that's it and they solve climate change. Well, hmm. no. First of all, yeah, climate carbon tax alone, even if it's possible to do at the quote unquote right level, isn't enough. It takes more. That's one. And two, uh, yeah, we've been jumping up and down about carbon taxes all, you know, forever. Um, and of course, it's different by country, right? Some countries do have carbon taxes, and that's great, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Let's cheer that on, and you know, let's get every other country to do something similar, right? That's important, of course. Getting the policy right is important, absolutely. But it's not the only thing, right? And now we are again, you know, now we are with the art of the possible. Okay, what does that mean, right? Well, that means politics, and yeah, that means the right answer is going to be different. But in different countries, mm-hmm. it will be, right? Some Canadian provinces have, you know, have better policies than other Canadian provinces. Some U.S. states have better policies than other U.S. states, of course, right? And then, of course, some countries have better policies than other countries. And it often depends on the politics. Okay. Um, incorporating that thinking in, you know, policy pronouncements, right? Recommendations of what ought to be done is in fact important um yeah. and um yeah there's a balance here now right there's a balance here now between uh you know bending over backwards to make stuff work politically versus getting um <laughs> getting the science right um similarly there are better and worse ways to try to try to address these political barriers and frankly <laughs> You know, what this exciting time we are in, in many ways, is, I mean, yeah, on the negative side, plenty of bad stuff happening on the climate front, right? Sort of these For negative sure. climatic tipping points, right? Um, the fact that what we know is bad or we don't know potentially much worse is bad. Um, on the policy front, on the, on the action front, there too, we are seeing you know, what I might call sort of these positive socioeconomic tipping points. Politics figures in, right? Um, uh, like, look, we, uh, it's sort of the adoption of new technologies, right? Um, you know, electric vehicles is one, heat pumps is another, uh, solar PV, right? It turns out solar PV, photovoltaic, is in fact the cheapest form of electricity in history. Mm-hmm. International mm-hmm. Energy Agency is right when, you know, when they said that um, two years ago, I think by now. Um, uh, and okay, so that doesn't mean we're going to solve the problem by itself. Of course not. Plenty of barriers still. But yeah, if you want to install the next gigawatt of um, um, electricity generation capacity, you'd be silly not to do it with solar PV because it's cheaper than everything else. Actually, now we are sort of with communication, right? There's always sort of this gotcha moment. Oh, but you guys sure. didn't think about that the sun does that the sun doesn't always shine, and you're like. Oh, thanks for telling me. I only have a PhD in this stuff. Thanks for telling me that, you know, the <laughs> sun doesn't shine at night. Didn't, didn't think of that, right? Uh, so, uh, or the wind doesn't always blow. It's like, oh, thanks, buddy. Yes, noticed. Mm-hmm. I've noticed. I have been outside. <laughs> so, uh, so yes, of course, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so no, it's not as easy as simply, you know, waving your, your hand and everything. Of course not. Otherwise we would have solved the problem a long time ago. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it is true that, you know, this is like heat pumps versus gas boilers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the heat pump is the better technology. Mm-hmm. It just is. You know, that said, there are plenty of barriers along the way, and not least of them, basically, the, you know, the local contractor who's going to tell you, oh, I've, you know, 
I have this one, bo- you know, I have another boiler sitting in my garage. It's going to, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you, you know, almost for free, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, or I've, I've only ever installed boilers. I have made bad experience, I've had bad experience with heat pumps. Yeah, because you installed one of them 15 years ago and then you gave up, right? right? Had you stuck with it, you would be in the biggest growth sector here as we speak, because frankly, yeah, there is a lot of potential here and it's, uh, you know, hundreds yeah. of millions or billions of, of, of these things, right, that need to be installed in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, so <laughs> it's um, uh, about the economics. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Of course, it always is, right? Dollars and cents, right? Uh, it matters. It does. Um, but it's also, of course, yet again, about, frankly, sort of, you know, the norms, right? What is desirable? What seems desirable? Which apartment, what type of heating is featured in that Architectural Digest article as, you know, being the most desirable? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and within, like, the climate debate more broadly, you, you have this really nuanced discussion of moral hazards in your book, Geoengineering the Gamble. In that book, you talk about how invoking moral hazards is inherently political and kind of like in, in a sense normative to use this language that we're using. Um, I think that's really interesting. And, and I, I feel like moral hazards has like a clear definition in economics, but you're trying to kind of expand the frame and say that it's not just about like, for example, corporations using a monopoly to leverage an inflation crisis to rake in unprecedented profits. You're more kind of inclusive of the ways in which like the environmental left as well for, you know, we'll look at techno fixes as a moral hazard that can like stave off the need for radical climate action. Um, so I like, I, I just think that's really interesting in terms of trying to think about the political barrier barriers that exist for getting actual policies in place that might be transformative. And I wondered if you wanted to like speak yep. to that concept of moral hazards and whether, you know, sure. you agree uh, if like things like carbon pricing or geoengineering are on some level moral hazards, or if it's just a, like a political calculation to kind of make that claim. Okay. Carbon pricing is not, right? In the sense that, you know, doing that would be the right solution, right? And in the, you know, all-encompassing sense of the term pricing carbon, mm-hmm. uh, carbon pollution. Um, so there's no sort of moral hazard aspect I can think of, but, but where moral hazard comes in is basically with so-called techno fixes. Everybody has that, right? So the political right has their moral hazard, hazards, right? And uh, you, you know, sort of, you can think of sort of the examples, right? You know, in this country, in the U.S., right? It's sort of health insurance, right? When sort of Obamacare debate sure. happens, right? National health insurance, right? It was about, oh no, you know, staying healthy is an individual responsibility, right? If the government mm-hmm. comes in, then you know, that's going to be that's going to incentivize you to eat more hamburgers. Right. And, and you're talking you know, about abortion I think the as well. Is, yeah. In these terms. Uh, right? Well, yeah. Right. I, I think. Yeah. So, OK. So, yeah. You know, abortion might be the extreme example, but, you know, condoms. Right. Basically, mm-hmm. it's sort of, you know, if you're, the, you know, Christian right. Right. Like, yeah. You know, sex is icky. Right. Shouldn't happen unless you, you know, you reproduce. Um, so uh, making condoms available. Right. Uh, makes sex safer. So there's going to be more happen. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know. We don't want to talk about that. That's, you know, icky or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's sort of, that's what a Christian right, right? Uh, basically says, oh, that's a moral hazard, right? So uh, or put, like moral hazard leads them to the fear of moral hazard, leads them to say, 
you know, say, at least some to say, right, even condoms are bad, right? right, right. Um, and, you know, the left looks at that and says, wait, that's crazy, right? I mean, right. they save lives, turns out, literally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's the uh, same as something so, like free okay. injection sites, right? It's like people are going to use drugs. Mm-hmm. Let's prevent death. Right, like this. Let's prevent yeah, exactly. the worst yeah. outcomes. Yeah, Need- needle exchange programs. Right, exactly. Okay, cool. Uh, so that's right. That's on one side of the political spectrum. Okay, the political left, yes, also has moral hazards as mm. sort of a you know a, you know has problems with moral hazards, and it's often about uh, situations where a new technology fixes a problem without addressing the underlying behavior, much like, you know, on the other side of the political spectrum. Okay, so yeah, the history of the U.S. environmental movement in many ways is a history of moral hazards, right? Um, nuclear technology, nuclear power, right, uh, you know, has its own problems. Yes, of course it does. Every energy source has its own problems. Um, but, uh, you know, when that sort of became prominent, the debates became prominent in the 60s, 70s and so on, right, sort of the response was often, oh, but that absolves us from saving energy in the first place, mm-hmm. right? Um, and of course, solar geoengineering, right, or for the matter, carbon removal, right, is a, a good example of precisely this fear yet again, where it's like, yeah, I get it, right? We should stop emitting CO2. We should stop using 100 million barrels of oil every single day globally, right? Mm-hmm. And yes, we should, of course. Right? Yes, 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 yes. Let's change our behavior. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and then there's the techno fix. Right? This is like, okay, me and my obsession with the suburbs, right? Or sort of the, you know, uh, not liking them, right? Is about, um, uh, like, yeah, electric vehicles, right? Aren't going to fix everything, right? Suburban sprawl is still going to be a thing mm-hmm. despite electric vehicles. But conditional on, Lots of people living in the burbs. Yeah, let's have them drive electric vehicles. They're still going to be stuck in traffic. They're still going to miss dinner with their kids being stuck in traffic, right? Um, but at least they're driving EVs and not contributing as much to global warming as they would with the internal combustion. It's, it's sort of, you know, it's so late in the game, right? Yeah. Uh, we can't choose. We can't say, oh, this is the perfect. It's just like, Okay, this is like the tagline to, you know, Naomi Klein's book or one of her latest, right, of sort of, you know, climate is the last best chance to uh, to um, uh, solve or uh, uh, capitalism as we know it, mm-hmm. right, or sort of to reform capitalism as we know it. It's like, okay, you know, good luck, right? I mean, yeah, okay, yeah, yes, I'm all for it, right? Like plenty of problems, right? Let's Let's fix them all, sure. But if you make fixing climate conditional on fixing every other social ill, you're not going to do much. Right? So much I wanted, no, yeah. And I think Klein is the perfect example. Like I, I see her as moving into a little bit more of a pragmatist kind of framework in the wake of like Biden's election. She said some really interesting things about how maybe it was the right move to um, you know, nominate Biden instead of instead of Sanders just to get Trump out of office. So like that to me is a pivot from her kind of normal hardline anti-capitalist kind of position, which, you know, I, I admit is, is more or less my position. Like in an ideal world, I wouldn't mind like an abolition of, you know, the free market fundamentalism or neoliberalism that rules the globe. Like that would be okay with me. But at the same time, you are clearly a realist when it comes to engaging strategically with policy, right? 
Like I get that as an economist, almost by default, you have to think in terms of the coordinates of what is possible within a capitalist system. Of course. And, and, and to be clear, okay, so just to be clear, right? Like it has plenty things wrong with the way we have set up our capitalist system, or frankly, how we are not, right? We are just sort of, you know, letting just things let rip, yeah. right? And basically, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? And not caring about, right? Um, and that's a real problem, sure. But mm. there's also a difference between saying, okay, we've got to, you know, fix the problems versus you sort of, you know, you need to turn off human, you know, desires, right? Um, you know, sort of the invisible hand of the market, right? I mean, you can make sort of a fetish out of that and basically say, look, government is always bad because it interferes with this invisible hand. I mean, no, not true. Of course not, right? At the end of the day, we need to, have to, must realize that the purest solution just isn't going to cut it. And that goes on both sides. Yeah, no. And, and this is the thing, like you talk about, to get back to that question of pragmatism, you talk about how, again, speaking to your specific field and this community of, of thinkers that you're a part of, like you've, you've written this article on the need for a kind of climate revolution within uh, economics. And you say that like economists need to roll with the punches of a highly imperfect policy world. And that the tactic is usually to stick to the script to sound like you're speaking the same language, but then sort of try to push the envelope. And yet, like, it sounds like at the same time, you're, you're increasingly kind of hostile to a politics of incrementalism. There's like this interesting tension in your work between the realist approach of saying like, everything we know about the economics tells us certain things won't yep. and can't happen, that deindustrialization or rewilding um, is a quote, green dream, uh, and maybe too utopian. And yet at the same time, you're saying that, for example, like the EU government should just shut down offices during the end of the winter heating season to like mitigate the effects of inefficient heating. Yeah, of course, of, of course, right. You can certainly say that, you know, not everything I've ever said in my life, right, is always perfectly consistent with each other. Uh, but just to be clear, right, the sort of the, you know, the work from home type thing, right, this was very much a February 25th, right, reaction to the invasion of Ukraine the day before. Right. Where yeah. basically it is, let's cut off Russian gas now. Sure. And by the way, yes, there are ways, right? Like if 50% mm-hmm. of people, of Europeans still work from home anyways, right? Why mm-hmm. not, you know, why not encourage? I mean, we've been there before. It wasn't pleasant, but yeah, it's doable, right? Totally. You basically tell everyone to stay home for two weeks while we're still heating our offices with Russian gas. Um, and, um, you know, people might actually listen right now because, yeah, there was this sort of wake up, right? there was this moment. There was this window of opportunity, mm-hmm. this moment where, frankly, you know, the German chancellor comes out swinging and says, we are going to send 100 billion euros worth of weapons to Ukraine, right? Um, in sort of the very first time ever that, you know, radical Germany gets involved reversal. in a conflict, you know, it, it, exactly, right? Radical reversal of policy. Well, at the same time, right, they could have. I, I, I argued, I still, I will still argue. Um, Germany could have, Europe could have at that time basically used that window of opportunity and said, we will get off Russian gas now, right? Mm-hmm. And frankly, now in some funny way, we increasingly now, you know, 11 weeks later, right? Several weeks later, we now still hear these arguments, um, or we now increasingly hear these arguments, right? That, yeah, Europe should consider doing that. And of course, you know, <laughs> had you planned on doing it, you know, the day after the invasion, right? 
um, we will be in a much better position now. Um, and uh, yeah, you could call this a, a, a call for radical change. Sure. Well, this is real life, right? Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of, you know, strategizing and writing white papers and figuring out how to design policy, right? And then suddenly there's this window of opportunity. And yeah, you better be ready mm -hmm. when that opportunity comes, right? So, you know, society advances in, you know, fits and spurts, right? Um, it's not a sort of always a rational incremental path toward yeah, where yeah. you want to be, where you should be. It's, you know, uh, sometimes a lot of things happen all at once. And then, you know, you take a few steps back. Right? It's okay to be internally inconsistent, if you will, right? In basically saying, yeah, you know, the sort of policies we should design should be pragmatic and should be, you know, get to 51 votes and so on, 51%, right? Um, while sometimes a window of opportunity opens and you're swinging for the fence. Yeah, no, it reminds um, me... Like for example, I just I just attended recently a, a webinar on the connections between Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, and the production of oil that was hosted by the Center for Energy Ethics, right? And during that conversation, there was this economist who was talking about this like spike in oil prices, and I asked him if he could like speak to the politics of rejecting Russian oil as a result of its invasion of Ukraine, and yet like for example, continuing to consume oil produced by Saudi Arabia without hesitation, like. You know, so it's a. I was basically saying, like, what about the politics of oil? And he said, you know, I was I was asked to come to talk about just oil and not politics. And then he paused for a second and like <laughs> had to concede the fact that the two things are totally inseparable. You know, um, yeah. And, but here's the thing: yeah. what he what he said, I think, correctly is that divestment from Russian energy means quote choosing your poison. That phrase really of stuck, stuck with me, right? You've written about nuclear as like yep. the choosing of that particular poison and, and realizing the problems with it. A lot of nations, especially the US, are picking the Canadian poison, right? Canada in recent months has exported almost 4 million barrels a day of crude oil to the US. That's up about 25% mm -hmm. since 2015 when Trudeau was elected. I see you wrestling with this specific problem. I know you've got to go in a second, so maybe we'll make this the last question. You know. These economists are saying like the transition must be a transition, meaning that you can't yep. suddenly do away with fossil fuels because if it isn't a slow transition, we're going to experience what this specific economist called a bumpy landing with severe costs that he mm -hmm. didn't quite specify. You've talked about how, quote, yep. the green transition was always going to be messy. What are those costs? And how do you think the perception of the costs of transition sometimes maybe gets in the way of the transition? Is the transition going to be messy? Yes, of course, right? Change always is, right? Um, some will win, more will win than will lose. But frankly, the wins are, you know, spread over many, many, many people, right? And yes, there's going to be some winners, right? Who win big, right? On the new technology, right? Selling us the new technology, right? Instead of from petrostates to electrostates, right? This famous cover of The Economist a couple of years ago, the um, Calinist magazine. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, electrostates are all good. No, one of them is China, right? The main one is China, right? Um, not a democracy, last time I checked, right? So, um, no, we're not going to solve every problem, right? We're not going to solve, you know, turn everybody into democracies here just because we are no longer buying Russian oil, right? Um, or Saudi oil, for that matter. Um, and yeah, there are trade-offs. Of course there are. Um, and no... 
I know now, you know, getting off Russian oil, right? Doesn't mean we suddenly solve climate change automatically. No, actually, fossil fuel emissions might go up, right? Because we are using basically less efficient ways of getting, you know, fossil energy to Europe in the short run. Yeah, are we now also installing more heat pumps than before? Yes, and that is good. But no, we are not, you know, we're not going to solve the war in uh, Ukraine because of heat pumps. Uh, we're going to do that because of getting fossil fuels in the short run from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I really take um, a lot from your, your work and, and I've taken a lot from this conversation, but I won't take any more of your time. Thanks very much for making the time. This has been great. Thanks, Josh.